This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Natkarni. To people who aren't geologists, rocks epitomize immobility, solidity, and endurance. We sing hymns like Rock of Ages. We have expressions like solid as a rock. But people who are geologists know that rock arches and rock towers move, and they move a lot. Even though we can't see or hear them, they vibrate, sag, sway, and shimmy. A research team centered at the University of Utah has deepened our understanding of this phenomenon, work that involved not only sensitive quantitative seismometers and elegant mathematical modeling, but also the help of experienced rock climbers to get to the top of these tall towers of rock. Knowing these properties is crucial to understanding the seismic stability of rock towers and their susceptibility to hazardous vibrations. Today, I'm speaking with one of the authors of that study, Riley Finnegan. She's a PhD student at the Department of Geology and Geophysics at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Riley, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Riley, thanks so much for taking the time to share your amazing research with our listeners and with me. I'm actually a professor at the University of Utah School of Biological Sciences, so I'm thrilled to talk to a fellow scientist from the University of Utah. First, can you just start us off by telling us your current research setting, sort of where you are now academically? Yeah, um, I am in my fifth year of my PhD, and I am finishing up my dissertation sometime. Fantastic. That must feel very good. That's fantastic. You know, I found your study just so cool, not only from the scientific knowledge that emerged, but also the activities and the collaborators you had to engage to climb these arches to get the work done. So we'll talk about both of those aspects as we move through our conversation. But but let's get to your paper. You know, Riley, I myself, as I'm an ecologist and I'm not a geologist, so I want to make sure that I understand the basics um, as we go through this. Let's set the stage by getting some background knowledge of the movement of rock structures, which I gather is kind of a subfield of study of geology. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a, a niche study. <laughs> there's there's not a lot of people that look at arches and towers and how they how they vibrate and and move, but but it is um, the field is getting larger. Cool. That sounds really sort of being pioneers, but also having a few others who are also doing or interested in this kind of work. Yeah. And I gather from the introduction of your paper that rock towers and fins and slabs are commonly associated with a variety of different kinds of sort of environments and, and, and systems, coastal bluffs and cap rock rims and cliffs and erosional landscapes. Could you place us geographically where your study sites are? Most of our listeners are actually from Utah, so we might know the places where you worked. Where, where exactly did you do your study? Yeah, so all of our sites are located in Utah, and the majority of them are in the southeastern part of the state. And so um, a few of them are in the Moab area, and um, some of them are actually you know, quite, quite popular. Castleton Tower, for one, is a, is a really famous uh, freestanding tower in the area. Great. And and how many ta- rock towers did you study? And how long did it take to actually sort of be in the field to gather your raw data? Uh, so we studied 14 different towers. And um, this, this, this all happened over a period of a few years. And so we weren't, you know, out there for like three weeks in a row, just climbing towers. Um, this, this kind of evolved over time. Um, so our um, Castleton Tower measurement was the first one that we made, and that was in 2018. Yeah, and then the most recent one happened in 
2021. So, so yeah, about, about three, three years of, of making these, these vibration measurements. Wow. That's been, so really your dissertation has been pretty short in terms of, you know, really being able to collect data, to analyze it, and then to provide results to others. So I think that's actually a pretty speedy uh, study in terms of geology. Yeah. And just to kind of clarify, this is, this is a little, this isn't like directly related to my dissertation. This was a little bit of a side tangent that, that happened. Isn't that funny how sometimes side tangents of our research actually turn into these amazing results yeah, of, yeah. Of, of, of leaping uh, our knowledge of different systems, even though they may not be the, the central study that we're concerned with. You know, one thing that at, at, at Undisciplined in this radio program, we'd love to think about how one scientific study nearly always happens by one study building on the shoulders of another. And I was wondering what the earlier work was that provided the foundation for your understanding of how geological features like fins and arches can move. Yeah, so there's there's a lot I think that 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 is uh, that happened before this, um, and so part of the study we compiled some some data from other studies and from some gray literature, um, so like stuff that isn't really like that wasn't like a published scientific study, but like you know the Department of Transportation has this data or or national parks have these um, these data. So, so there are people that um, before us have, have studied different landforms like this, very like slender towers or pinnacles, freestanding hoodoos, or even like cave stalagmites. You know, to me, this, you know, reading your paper was kind of a whole new world for me. I hadn't realized that there, that you, you know, you and your team had done this, nor that there was this kind of background information from these different geological structures. So for me, it was a whole new world. Um, I also read in your paper that in many instances, there, these structures are culturally valued, and you and your team took special care not only with human safety of climbing them and non-destruction of the rocks, but also with these cultural aspects of where you were working. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about the fact that the land that you worked on belongs to Native Americans and incurs such care. What, what measures did you take to ensure respect for the structures and people where you worked? Yeah, so um, I guess, unfortunately, this land is considered traditionally the land of these um, Native American tribes, it's no longer under their ownership. And so it's, it's public land that we had access to. But, but we, of course, recognize that there are traditional and, and contemporary ties to, to this land. And so depending on where we were, especially, especially in Valley of the Gods, there were three towers there. That's, that's public land that's managed by the Bureau of Land Management. But even outside of there, I think that we we try to remember that we're walking on land and we're interacting with landforms that have special meaning to to different populations and that interacting with with this landscape requires a certain type of responsibility and uh, the Bears Ears in our tribal coalition provide some of the guidelines for visiting Bears Ears and those are those are the um, the guidelines that we try to follow, such as you know not not going off of the designated trails, not taking or touching any cultural artifacts if we find them, and and you can find more information about that through their through their website. Thank you. I really appreciate our. I think and our listeners will do also that the care that is taken 
even though this is a scientific project to understand that culture and tradition, um, well, just that culture and tradition really work into every scientific study when we when those two things intersect. So I appreciate the work that you and your colleagues did. One of the things that I really loved about your study was the way that you and your colleagues gathered evidence from multiple disciplines using different tools and different approaches to get to the answer of, answers to your questions. Um, sort of like gathering the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle with these different pieces of evidence. And I was wondering if you could describe how you assembled your team from four institutions in four different states and two countries. How did that, how did that collaboration come about and how did it end up working out? Um, everyone at some point has been in Utah. And so that's, that's where our team kind of assembled. And, and since since making some of these measurements and working on some um, some of the data, people have gone to different institutions, and so our our team, like you said, you know, there's a bunch of people that that helped the study happen who are who are authors and also um, outside of the authors. And we had like my advisor's nephew and his parents were helping out in the field. We worked <laughs> with high school students. We worked with different friends, and so um, so a lot of people helped make the study happen. And how we assembled the team, um, so there are two undergraduates, um, or one current undergraduate student and one former undergraduate student who uh, worked with our research group and through the UROP program at the university, which is, I think, undergraduate research opportunities. And so, so that's a program that, that connects undergrads to research. Yeah, I saw that in the acknowledgments that you were funded both by a grant by the National Science Foundation and by the College of Undergraduate Studies. So I'm really happy to hear that undergraduates had the opportunity to to, to work with this project as well. Fantastic. Yes, yes. And then um, Kat Bollinger, she was a climber. She is a climber. Um, and she reached out to our group um, years ago. And she's she's a, a person who climbing is part of her profession. And so she, she really knows what she's doing and how to do things safely. And so, yeah, we, we included her in some of our um, field work and she really helped to lead a lot of the field work in this project. Fantastic. That's exactly what we love to hear at Undisciplined is people from wildly different disciplines can contribute to the making of science. And I think that's fantastic. Going back to your study, I know that you know scientists structure their studies in different ways, and often there's an existing body of theory from which to work. And then we collect data that allows us to see whether the real world fits or doesn't fit that theory. And I understand you were sort of drawing on some theory around how these structures move. I was wondering if you could if you could sort of encapsulate what were those theories and, and what discipline they were they were based in. Yeah, so I guess we're, we're drawing from a lot here. Our, our methods and our theories kind of come from basic beam theory and methods that are employed by civil and structural engineers to study buildings and bridges that humans create. And so um, people have been, you know, doing this for, for decades on human created structures. And so did, though, did you find that the empirical data of these rock towers and these arches the, the data that you collected, did they match those theories? Did they fit them? Or did your results sort of expose that, no, nope, that doesn't really apply to these rock structures? Yeah, so um, I'm not an expert in buildings, but um, my understanding is that uh, you can treat a building or, in our instance, a tower like a cantilever, which is like 
think about a uh, like a stop sign how it's anchored at the base and it um is like just sticking out of the ground and so that's kind of what a building looks like that's what a tower looks like and and i think the difference between um the theories that apply to buildings and those that apply to these rock towers is that we see flexural bending is the main type of deformation that towers undergo versus buildings have both shear and flexural bending. And then you also, um, in the paper, describes some of the modeling that you did. Did you create real models or were these mathematical models? Or in some cases, I saw some visual models, some actual uh, like video representations of how these structures move. Yes. So all three of them. (laughs) So so I guess all three of them are combined into one. Um, So we use 3D photogrammetry. So that just means, you know, taking photos of an actual object or a tower in this case, and then creating a 3D model of it and then performing mathematical and physics simulations on it to understand uh, what, what these equations predict the motion of the tower to be. I see. I was wondering if you could just sort of briefly encapsulate what you did find, like how much do these structures move? And that's kind of the bottom line. What what did you find? What can you describe and tell us about what the results were? Yes. So um, our, our main findings, I guess, I guess this is, wasn't, wasn't one of our main findings, but it's, it's, inherent to the study, that uh, towers are constantly vibrating, arches are constantly vibrating, anything, anything that, you know, isn't zero Kelvin is constantly vibrating, because there's, there's energy within and around, in this case, the towers. And so our, the towers are constantly vibrating. And like you mentioned, we can't tell as humans, um, that they're swaying, because these, these motions are really, really, really small. Was your study able to determine what the source the energy source of these vibrations are like what is making these these towers move where where does this energy come from yeah so that wasn't a main uh, focus of the study because i think um, many people have already determined this and 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 there's there's energy throughout the earth um, and there's energy around the earth and so wind is a really common contributing factor towards things vibrating in nature um, i mean i know you study trees and um, right. these, are, these are also always vibrating. Yes, um, and, they are. Yeah, yeah. So so wind is something, um, is a source of energy, and then energy within the earth. And so that, that can be from earthquakes that are far away or from ocean waves. Um, and Yeah, and so so even, even up in, in Utah. I would, that's can, what just astounded me about this was like ocean waves. I know. Wow. I mean, it really sort of reinforces in a funny way this, you know, this concept that everything is connected, that what happens in one part of the world affects the other. And, and you know, the, the idea that one of the rock arches in or rock towers in Utah can be affected by an earthquake halfway around the world or ocean waves thousands of miles away is 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 really both a sort of profound philosophical statement as well as a scientific one, I think. Um, yeah, so so our main findings here are that we can pretty much predict the fundamental mode um, or fundamental frequency of towers given knowing um, the stiffness of the material and also just its height and its width. And so this is, this is something that I think has, I guess, in, in, good application in that you don't have to have a climber climb up a 
100 meter tower to figure out what its resonant uh, frequencies are. We we have this. Um, we understand that this theory does does help predict uh, these these frequencies. That is fantastic. And that was another thing I really noted. And it, it's funny, you know, you said something that um, resonated with me as, a, as an ecologist. Very often the sequence of the eco- of ecological studies is to document a pattern in nature and then study the processes that create that pattern and then apply those two pieces of understanding, pattern and process, to make predictions. So now that your group has been able to describe the pattern and process, I guess that kind of leads, you know, sort of so that it leads to the ability to make predictions about not just the towers, the particular towers that you studied, but perhaps extend that to others. Yes, I like how you describe that. (laughs) I learned that in Ecology 101, and I've I've kept it in my mind ever since. And I really see that, you know, in, in some ways, when as I was reading your paper, I thought, well, one of the, you know, one of the outcomes, one of the benefits of a study like this might be that it could lead to predictions about hazards or about the vulnerability of particular rock towers or structures, uh, especially when we start putting humans into the picture, like people visiting Arches National Park. Was one of the applications that came out of this about safety of people who congregate around these structures? So that's definitely something that uh, can come out of our study. We didn't directly look at, you know, is this tower going to collapse? Um, But rather, we now have the tools and information to use in uh, vibration assessment studies. And so um, if, if like, for instance, the Department of Transportation decided they're going to blast a new road through arches or something like that, we would be able to use, or not, not just arches, but, you know, an area with lots of towers, or even Bryce Canyon, like think about all those hoodoos. And, and so, so that information that we have here can, can be inputs for a vibration assessment study. And that would help people know whether or not, you know, the, the landforms would be damaged. And then also if the landforms get damaged, then they have a likelihood of failure. And so that then applies to human safety. Right, right. So, you know, increasingly, I know that every study that's supported by the National Science Foundation and other agencies as well has to think about the research impacts for society. And we're required to write what are called broader impact statements. And I was wondering if if that, this idea of human safety was one of your broader impacts, or if there were other aspects of your study that that would allow us to understand how a, scient- a basic scientific study like this might have impacts in society and, and with people. Yes. So I do not know what was on the NSF proposal, broader impacts, because um, <laughs> I didn't write that. Right, right. Um, but but here, definitely, um, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we talk about how towers are often associated with geohazards and, and that landslides or rock failure, um, tower collapses that that has a potential impact for harm to humans. I mean, there's there's documented collapses of of different towers. And I think last year, uh, Jawman, which is a rock climbing route up a tower in Moab, fell off. And like, thankfully, there are no climbers on it at the time. Wow! But um, they, they definitely collapse, and so it's 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 a it's a real it's a real thing. Yes, it's a real thing. Wow! 
Oh, let me ask you one little question back to the science behind this. I was telling my husband, Jack, about your study this morning as we were making breakfast. And he asked the question, do they make sounds? If they move and they vibrate, do sounds come out of these rock towers and these these rock arches? So... Sort of. <laughs> sort of. Um, <laughs> so one of one of the really neat outputs that we have from getting vibration data from these towers is that we can speed up those data to become something that humans can hear. And so oh. yeah, we're not taking we're not taking like a microphone and putting it up to the tower and seeing what it says, but um, we're able to take the actual vibration data. And, and in many instances, the, the frequencies that we're recording are really low. So um, if you were to just press play and listen to vibration data, humans wouldn't be able to hear it. And so we speed it up to become in a range that's audible. Got it. Sort of like whales. You know, yes. whales were making sounds for, for millennia. And uh, it wasn't until we realized, I guess, that we needed to uh, shift the frequency so that we could hear the beautiful sounds that they make. So maybe one day there'll be a rock tower symphony that we can hear at, at uh, in the in symphony hall here in Salt Lake City. That would be great. Yeah. Um, your paper, which was published earlier this year in Seismologi Seismological Research Letters, um, has received a huge amount of attention, both from other scientists and from the media and the public. I was wondering if, if you were surprised at how interested people are in this work. We were a little shocked that there wasn't a lot of interest oh, no. <laughs> compared to like some what? of our other stuff. <laughs> um, so like, like I, I had presented on helicopter infrasound and how that impacts arches and towers. And that got a ton of media coverage. And we were like, oh, this... This tower paper is just kind of slowly trickling. Wow. <laughs> but, um, but I, I guess, yeah, to answer your question, um, I think that it, the interest shows that you know, people, people are interested in, in this sort of thing. And, and especially in Utah, like these, these features are very prominent and they're, I mean, there are a lot of them are tourist attractions. And so there's, of course, like an economical interest, but also they're, they're just really unique features of our landscape. And I think that people feel like a, a connection to them. Yes, a connection. That's right. And so, of course, when you feel a connection to someone, whether it's a rock or a tree or a person, you want to find out more about them. So I can imagine that was a, as you said, a prompt, especially for people here in Utah. Um, you know, earlier we talked about how your study sort of built on the work of the, on the shoulders of other scientists and other scientific projects. And I'm wondering what effort your team has made to make the data that you guys have collected accessible to other scientists. Yes. So um, unfortunately, the paper and the journal that we published in, yeah, the paper isn't open access. And so you can always email us and we'll just give you a copy of that. But the data are available um, for free. And um, I think that it's linked to in the used press release. And, and, and those data are available for download. So anyone can access the uh, vibration data and the 3D models that we made. Uh, Riley, on your website, I saw that you are interested in the ways that humans impact rock arches and towers. And just hearing you talk about you know, your work this morning, it makes me happy that you have found ways to contribute to that field. And, and for our listeners, especially our younger listeners who might want to do the kinds of work that you do in geology and geophysics, I was wondering if you have any guidance or advice to them. Yeah, I think that, you know, my journey to getting <laughs> to where I am 
has been um, an experience. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I, I studied physics in my undergrad program, and I thought that I was going to be an astrophysicist. And I did an internship um, where I, I did research on ground dwarf binary systems, and I was sitting in front of a computer for 10 weeks, and it was really hard and on on I mean it was you know it was, it was challenging work but it was also like hard on my my brain yes, <laughs> and my, my I, mental and your health. physical health yes yeah and I was like geez this is uh not what I want to do and it was right before my senior year of college and I was kind of freaking out because I was like oh my gosh like I thought I was going to apply to grad school in astrophysics what am I going to do and someone said you know you should look at geophysics it's like doing physics but you can go outside sometimes oh my gosh (laughs) that's amazing Riley yeah and so I I kind of had a a little bit of a really quick shift and started learning a lot about geophysics and became really attracted to this idea that the research I could do could have an impact that was tangible I think that you know a lot of the work that's happening in astrophysics and physics is having an impact but sometimes it's really intangible yes absolutely And Riley, thank you so much for sharing your insights on this fascinating piece of scientific research. All of us really wish you the best for your work in the future. Thanks. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tiso. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.